everyone. Thanks for joining us again for another episode of the Music History Project. Today we are going to talk about some pretty popular studio musicians out of Nashville, the A-Team, who are responsible for thousands of recordings that I can guarantee you've heard. Disclaimer, this has nothing to do with Mr. T. (laughs) There will be no pitying of no fools in this episode. Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Mike Mullins. Dan Del Fiorentino. And Michelle Shudler. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. And that is a collection that is over 3,500 interviews and constantly growing. If you want to check out any of our content or any of our other interviews that aren't featured today, please check out our website at www.nam.org library. So hello everyone, welcome back. We are excited to be here talking about the A-Team, one of the coolest studio groups there was, um, played on thousands of recordings. You know, it's really amazing to me that uh, we were lucky enough to have this oral history program at NAMM start at just the right time to get a lot of these guys who were very active in the recording industry in the 1950s and 60s, known as the A-Team in Nashville. And there's a whole story about how they came together. And the short version is, you know, the record boom right after World War II really dictated that there be more expansion of popular music, not just big bands, not just symphonic recordings, but also smaller groups. That had been popular in the Nashville and country music era in the 19, or area in the 1920s and 30s. But now there were recording studios that were asking more and more people to come in because there was a bigger need. And the distribution of records at that time was way more um, reliable than it had been in years past. So this gave studio ideas to uh, studio executives ideas to to build some studios, recording studios in Nashville. So RCA built Studio B, which is very famous for recording things like Heartbreak Hotel with Elvis, Crazy with Patsy Cline, and the list goes on and on. And then there were a couple of others. Um, uh, The Quad Hut that uh, the Decca Records people used, Owen Bradley and his brother Chet started. just an amazing group of people. Frank Foster had Monument Records, and he was also asking a lot of people to come in and record. So these were just three of the big ones. So what they needed were musicians to be in those studios so that when the artists came in, they were rip and ready to go, as uh, Buddy Harmon once told me. So the drum kit was there, the bass was there, the amplifiers were there, and most of the time these artists coming in, like Elvis and Patsy Cline and Roger Miller and Roy Orbison and oh my gosh, don't start, I'll never stop, (laughs) um, needed that band already set up and ready to go. So this made a very efficient way of making records at a time where there were lots of opportunities. So these producers, mostly Owen Bradley and his brother Chet, Frank Foster, um, they got together and said, hey, you know, let's use the same guys that we're used to. 
And so they did. And they became so popular and so much in demand that they were dubbed the A-Team. And they were the go-to musicians in Nashville for over a decade. So today we're going to celebrate these guys. And uh, we were lucky enough, as I said earlier, to interview a few. And Michelle has put together a, a little list of uh, some segments of each of their interviews. So uh, who are we going to hear from? So today we are going to hear from five different members of the A-Team. Charlie McCoy, Pig Robbins, Wayne Moss, Bob Moore, and Buddy Harmon. Awesome. What a lineup. Legends. It looks like the first section we're going to jump right into in this podcast is talking about how these guys got into the industry. And the first person we're going to hear from is Charlie McCoy. Do we want to talk a little bit about him before we hear from him? Sure. Charlie is the uh, harmonica player of the group. He was uh, born in Oak Hill, West Virginia in 1941 and inducted into the Country Hall of Fame, uh, Country Music Hall of Fame in 2009. And a hell of a guy, as you're going to about to find out. Just He taught me a lot of information, gave me a lot of uh, inside facts as to uh, his career and how that developed. Um, and I've decided that of the five folks we're going to hear today, I'm going to give you my sort of quintessential recording that you need to go and listen to if you're not familiar with him. Um, and this one for Charlie, I mean, he played harmonica on so many songs, it's almost unfair to name one, but I will. Roy Orbison's Candyman. Got to check it out. Awesome. So here's Charlie McCoy. Tell me um, your thoughts about uh, playing the guitar in, in that early time, being influenced by Chuck Berry and so on. Did, did you have hopes of being a professional, and, and what sort of things would you be doing? Well, uh, when I was 16 or 17, uh, I decided I'd try to sing. And it went over pretty well, you know. I'd sing around school, and everybody everybody liked it, you know. And uh, the the best thing that happened to me was that uh, a friend of mine took me to a square dance. Now, you know, when you're 16 and you're the authority of everything that's hip and cool, you know, I thought a square dance. You got to be kidding, you know. But he took me there, and uh, I didn't know anything about it. And while I was watching these people square dance, the, the MC said, oh, we've got a special guest in the audience. We're going to see if we can get him up to play and sing. And they called me up. And I had no idea, I, what am I going to do with a country band? And so I went on the stage and I said, uh, can I borrow a guitar? And the guy said, yeah. And I said, can you guys play Johnny Be Good? And they said, what key? I had no idea, you know. And so I started, uh, I started playing every week at that country dance. My job was to play rock and roll 15 minutes every hour for the younger people. One night Mel Tillis came in and he heard me play and sing. And uh, he said, uh, boy, if you come to Nashville, I can get you on DECA tomorrow. Well, you know, an 18-year-old kid who wants to play when you hear something like that, I mean, it's like, whoa. So anyway, I asked my boss, I said, is this guy for real? And he said, I doubt if he can get you on DECA tomorrow. But he's very well connected in Nashville. So when I finished high school, I came up here to audition. Mel Tillis set up auditions for me. I came up and auditioned for Chet Atkins, Owen Bradley, uh, Jim Vienno. Don Law, these were the four major record guys here in town. 
Well, and, I, and what I was doing was singing Chuck Berry. And, uh, well, nobody here was interested in Chuck Berry music in 1959. But the greatest thing that happened was that when I finished the audition with Owen Bradley, he said, you know, he said, you're pretty good, but we're not doing that kind of music here, you know. So I, I thought, well, okay, that's the end of that. He said, but I'm having a session this afternoon. Would you like to come watch? I didn't even know what a session was, but I, I had nothing to do, and I said, well, okay. So I went over to the studio, and I got there early, and he, there was a, a stairway at the end of the building, and he said, sit about halfway up that stairway, and you'll get a real idea of what's going on here. So I go up there, and I sit, and all, then musicians start coming in. And when you're 18, everybody looks old, right? But these were like Bob Moore, Buddy Harmon, Floyd Kramer, you know. I mean, I didn't know who they were. So they started coming in, and then the artists came in, 13-year-old Brendan Lee. And I thought, they got to be kidding. This little kid is going to sing, you know. And, uh, you know, you, I'm sitting up there judging everything, and I don't know anything. And uh, so they start working on a song, and I'm looking, and I said, there's no music. How are these guys playing without any music, you know? The first playback was total magic. It was the greatest thing I'd ever heard. And at that moment, I said, to heck with singing, I want to do this. This is so special. And that, that was, that's three hours that changed my life, right there. So I went back to Miami, went almost a year to the University of Miami studying music education. And one day I pulled over my car on the side of the road and I said, I don't want to teach music. I want to play. I want to go to Nashville. <laughs> and it wasn't long, I made my way back. <laughs> That's incredible. That's a good story. Uh, it's, yeah. It, it, <laughs> you know, I, I think I'm, I'm really blessed because all the pieces fell into place. Mm. I wasn't here long before, you know, it started to work and, and uh, you know, much sooner than many people that come here. Of course, I was playing an instrument that nobody else played. That helped a lot. Yeah, I was going to talk to you a little bit about yeah. that. Yeah. When I interviewed Boots, he said sort of the same thing. You know, it helps that there weren't a lot of other people playing the instrument. Right. Yeah, Boots was on that Brendan Lee session, too. Oh, was he? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was. So, uh, harmonica and Nashville don't have a long history, I guess. No, uh, there was... Uh, there was a guy that played for Roy Acuff named Jimmy Riddle, and he played, he played a little bit, and there was also a, a guy, a country player named Oni Wheeler. And, and toward the end, Oni and Jimmy both played for Roy Acuff, but Jimmy played piano, and, and Oni played harmonica. Mm. But those were really the only two guys here that were doing anything, but they played a really old style and uh, it was not very adaptable to many to many types of music, you know. And so, I was uh, very fortunate to come here when I did. Do you think there were um, people just needed to hear how the harmonica could fit into country music? Yeah, because uh, well, at first I didn't do much country music. My very first session was with Ann Margaret. It was kind of a pop song. My second session was Candyman with Roy Orbison, uh, and. They were, you know, we, Roy Orbison was one of the artists here that was 
not doing straight ahead country music. And uh, people were, they were interested in the sound and they were trying to fit it into country music. Well, what happened was I became a fan of country music and I changed my style. And I realized pretty soon that, okay, the blues is fine, but it's not going to be very long lasting here. So I got interested in listening to fiddles and dobros and steel guitars and listened to how the great country guitar players, how they would play behind the singer and steel, how they would play behind the singer. And these are the things that influenced me. And I, my whole style changed. You know, when I came here, I could play every little Walter song there was. And I probably still could if I, if I worked on it, but my whole thing changed, you know. I don't play through a mic, I don't play through an amp. You know, what you, I play acoustic, what you hear is what you get, and it's served me well. Absolutely. <laughs> I can't believe your second session was Candyman. Yeah, I was talking about a stroke of luck, huh? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, that's the man looking out for you right there. So once again, that was Charlie McCoy, and in addition today um, to hearing from these five members of the A-Team, we want to drop uh, other little facts about the group um, to you listeners, just so you can learn more about this historical recording group. Um, and the first thing I think we want to talk about is other members that were in the A-Team, apart from these five guys. Yeah, I think that's a really good idea. I mean, you think about... Um, the opportunities that we had. Unfortunately, there were some opportunities we didn't have. Uh, I really, really wish we could have interviewed Chet Atkins and his brother Owen. Um, very important uh, producers that helped the A-Team become who they were. Uh, other members, musicians that played, like the pianist Floyd Kramer, uh, guitarist Grady Martin and Hank Garland and Pete Drake, and also uh, the woman of the group, Velma Smith, Velma William Smith, um, was an important element of the group and sometimes overlooked. I really wish we had had the opportunity to interview her because you know me, I'd be promoting that all the time. <laughs> um, just amazing group of folks. And then there were some that we interviewed that um, we didn't uh, have a time to put in this podcast, but I think a little shout out to all of them um, and then a little link to, uh, to get to where you can watch uh, their web clips. Harold Bradley, we did get to interview him, which was fantastic. Jimmy Caps, um, the great buddy Emmons, Boots Randolph, my personal hero as a saxophonist. Uh, Earl Scruggs was often considered a member of the A-Team, as was Chip Young, Steve Nathan, and Sonny Osborne of the Osborne Brothers. So all of those guys were uh, interviewed for the oral history program. And if they want to check out their clips, where can they go? They can head over to nam.org slash library, and if you click on advanced search, you can search through all of our keyword tags, and we have one for the Nashville A-Team. And all of these guys will, and girls will pop up for you. Awesome. So we're going to get right back into the podcast here and talk uh, or play the uh, segment of Pig Robbins' interview. Uh, Pig was born in uh, Spring City, Tennessee in 1938 and uh, became one of the great classic piano players in country music and was one of the guys as part of the A-Team that we should mention expanded and played way more than just country music, even though that might have been his roots. Like many of the A-Team members, whatever the artist was, that's what they played. And sometimes classic jazz, classic rock and roll. I mean, it didn't really matter. They were so proficient at their instrument that 
that uh, they could play everything. So Pig was inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame in 2012. And the quintessential record that I would like to recommend is uh, Roger Miller's Dang Me. Fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) Plus it's fun to say Dang Me. (laughs) Here's Pig. What sort of options did you have or were you thinking about as far as your career? Well, I just, you know, I, I, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't like school all that much. You know, I, I just, until I got into like 10th grade, I, I just tried to get by, you know, as far as making grades. And then uh, I woke up one day in the 10th grade and I said, hey, I might as well try to get out of here, you know, <laughs> try to graduate <laughs> since I made it this far. But anyway, the summer before I graduated, I worked at a photo finishing plant. Where else but the dark room for a blind man? <laughs> but we, you know, we didn't really. All we had to do is strip, uh, hook one end of the film onto a, a clamp and uh, strip the paper off of it and put a weight on the other end. We said they were on a machine that took it through. The, it was time to take it through the different chemicals. So, you know, but. I, you know, I liked that. And then when I when I graduated, I went back to that place and worked, uh, you know, for another year, two years, you know. And then I started kicking around. Um, well, I was playing in clubs, you know, even at, you know, <laughs> 16, 17. Uh, but um, I, I, I uh, Got to. Uh, I met some songwriters, and uh, they um, we throw it in together and kind of um, uh, would make our home demos, take them around to different publishing companies, mm-hmm. and um, so the people would always comment about the who's playing piano, you know. And so I met uh, Buddy Killen and different ones in the publishing business, and. Uh, and they got me on some demos and then later on some sessions and so it just kind of grew from there you know did it surprise you that uh, it took off the way it did well uh, <laughs> it didn't take off <laughs> not too swift at first it just you know it was a long way maybe after i joined the union in 57 doing did my first record session you know i might just get one every three or four months you know because <clears throat> there's only like two studios is uh, Bradley's and RCA B was well, only is only one then so and they had one band and uh, they booked most people would just book is right across you know one was on 16th one was on 17th they just walk across the street if they you know to change studios if they had to and um, so uh, and Floyd Kramer, you know, he was the man then um, that did, did all the sessions. And so uh, I think it's about 60. Started they built a, a studio out on Dickerson Road, and then that opened up, a, you know, another uh, access for a different band, you know. And then. Um, but then I would, I had, uh, you know, I'd, I say I played on White Lightning in '59, so that, you know, got me some recognition. I should say. Yeah. And um, and you know, this thing, then then start things started growing. You know, I, I was 
I started playing on the opera by the end and getting uh, meet, meeting some of the um, uh, country artists and so forth. And just kind of grew there. So it, um, White Lightning was really what helped open up the doors, I guess. Yeah. Well, it was my first number one I ever played on, so hmm. yeah, that, that did a lot. Do you think you did anything different on that song, or was it just a different opportunity? Well, yeah, I had a little different lick than what, you know, it's kind of a rockabilly thing, you know, and and um, that was kind of the rage at that point, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and I noticed that, uh, as you said, the, the Opry was soon thereafter. Did, had you had any opportunity before White Lightning? No, play? no. Not not play at the Opry, no. Hmm. And what, what was that experience like? Because it was still over at the Ryman, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, well, that was, <laughs> you know, I was young and crazy and, you know, nothing phased me, you know, it was because they didn't have any air conditioning or, or you know, it was an old upright piano you played. I didn't care, you know, I was making a few bucks and having a, a big time. <laughs> <laughs> The next segment you're going to hear about is some of the instruments that they used, specifically that Wayne Moss used while recording. Dan, can you tell us a little bit about Wayne Moss and what all he did? Sure. Another great guy that we were so lucky to interview. Um, Wayne, actually, in addition to playing on the A-Team in 1961, he started his own recording studio called Cinderella Music. And that is still one of the, the last of the independent recording studios in Nashville, as a side note. He was uh, born in Charleston, West Virginia back in 1938 and is probably best known for playing guitar, although he played bass on a couple of well-known recordings as well. If you would like to hear his amazing guitar lick, there's a great uh, recording I would suggest. It's a little ditty called I Want You by Bob Dylan. <laughs> Talk about a name dropper, <laughs> my gosh. Fantastic recording. So uh, we're re really proud to uh, talk a little bit more about the A-Team and uh, what we can learn from Wayne Moss. What guitar were you playing? What instrument on Pretty Woman? I was playing Jazz Master, the one you saw in the Musicians Hall of Fame. How did you get that? Well, I am. Um, one of the first ones that came out in 1958 and they only made them a couple of years 58 and 59 and I ended up with five of them I sold one to Marty Stewart one to my buddy uh, Johnny Mack and I still got a couple but um, the reason I chose the Jazz Master is the the uh, Stratocaster I had would hum anytime you get in a studio with a Rear stats on the lights, you turn them down about halfway and it'll go and uh, it would drive you crazy. So the jazz master's got humbuckers in it and eliminates that problem. I never did play a, a Les Paul much. They're too heavy and they cost too much money. I'm sort of curious what uh, music stores, instrument stores were around in Nashville that you go to? Oh gosh, I don't know. Um, the um, I bought my first electric guitar in West Virginia from Herbert Music Company. I think the uh, Jazz Master came from um, 
one locally uh, that doesn't exist anymore. Um, Hank Snow had a place for a while, different ones, but Hughley's and um, stuff. But now it's, you know, there's guitar centers everywhere and, and it's changed considerably. I remember once Grady Martin called me up and said, um, I've got a session for you at Columbia at two o'clock on Thursday. And uh, I said, what am I playing? He said, bass guitar, tic-tac. I said, I don't have one. He said, well, get one, click. So I had to go to uh, the, uh, the place in Nashville where I bought my jazz master and said, I've got to have a bass guitar. How quick can you get it here? And he said, we'll get it overnighted to you, but it's going to cost you. So that ate up all the profit from that session, but I uh, kept it around a few years. I sold it later for $1,500. And then I went to Sam Ash and I saw one that was beat all to pieces for $7,500. Oh. <laughs> I said, oh no, should have hung on to it. <laughs> but um, mine didn't have a scratch on it. What but were you playing on Blonde on Blonde? I played uh, a, a jazz master on I Want You. And um, there's the amp I was playing through right there. It's a <laughs> Fender Twin. The serial number on it is 0102. They started them at 100, so that uh, makes the second twin ever built. And it has no echo, no tremolo, nothing. It's just two 12-inch speakers. And uh, they're not side-by-side. Side, they're offset. Hmm. Like um, it's, it was one of those tweed amps, you know. How did you get it? I inherited it from uh, the band, The Casuals. They had a, a guitar player named John, Johnny McQuarrie, and um, they were out on one of these endless tours that they had out west, and I don't know, he was in Nevada or somewhere. He said, I quit. Give me my guitar, I'm out of here. Pull the car over. And they said, what about your amp? Oh, it's all the way in the back of the trailer. Just keep it. That's it. <laughs> Oh, interesting. Any other favorite stories from the Blonde on Blonde experience? Um, sure. Uh, we um, we uh, drank a lot of coffee and uh, it took us a long time to get things recorded. We, Charlie McCoy and I came up with the Nashville number system and uh, prior to Dylan getting here we were real slick at knocking out four songs, six songs in three hours time. So when Charlie said, show up for Dylan, I said, who's Dylan? He said, He's, he wrote Blowing No Wind, just show up. Okay. So we got coffeeed up and ready to do it. And he didn't, the session started at two. He showed up at six and we made two cuts on Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands by 8.30 the next morning. So. In that length of time, we tried to stay alert, drank a lot of coffee, played ping pong, cards, whatever. And so, Blonde on Blonde went well, and he came back to do Nashville Skyline. And he said the same thing he said before, well, I gotta work on some lyrics, y'all take a break. I said, okay, I know where this is going. So I got out my guitar, and I started writing my own song. That kind of got on Dylan's nerves. And he said, I don't think we're gonna need Moss on this session. Tell him to sign the card and go home. So I got fired off a of Nashville skyline. <laughs> but that was okay, I went fishing and 
paid to rent. <laughs> but anyway, uh, he uh, he got a Nobel Prize the other day, and in that Hall of Fame thing we did the other day, they were asking what I thought about his lyrics and all, and I said, man, I don't know. You know, I didn't listen to him. I, I was following the chord chart. But um, he said, well, how did it affect what you play? And I said, well, I just played what I was reading, you know. And he didn't win a Nobel Prize for my guitar playing, so. <laughs> I said, I'll tell you what, though, in, in my hometown, they got a sign saying, you know, Wayne Moss. And in Charlie's hometown, it says, hometown of the world's greatest harmonica player, Charlie McCoy. I said, Bob Dylan, his hometown is Hibbing, Minnesota. And I went through there one day and it says, home of the world's first strip mine. <laughs> I said, somebody needs to fix that. And, uh, you know, Nobel Prize winner or something, you know, something a little better than the world's first strip mine. So once again, that was Wayne Moss. And we're going to move on to a new section now. Um, we're going to talk about how the A-Team worked together. And I think one of the greatest examples of how they worked together was the Nashville numbering system, um, which was something that they came up with. It was an easier way for studio musicians to kind of get on the same page in the studio very quickly. Um, basically, the concept was instead of writing out uh, specific chords such as like C, D, G, whatever it would be, they would use numbers to notate the uh, the note in the scale. So um, if you were in a major scale and say it was key of C and you did, you wrote down like a one and a four and a five, then you would play um, the one chord of key of C and then the four chord and the five chord. This way if say a singer came in who couldn't sing in the key of C and needed to sing, I don't know, key of F sharp, you could easily transpose the song just by still following the same numbers and using the different scale. So it was kind of a simple concept, but no one really did it before. And these guys weren't afraid to, and it, it made the song learning process and uh, remembering song structure a lot easier. So now we're going to hear from uh, Pig Robbins again, and he's going to be talking about how the team worked well together. Where did the Dick Dig Pig come from, and, and when? I got that in school. Mm. Um, they had some old barrel-type fire escapes. They were, they were metal. And a couple of times a year, they'd let us um, go in them, slide down them, you know, like a practice fire drill and clean them out and so forth and uh, for the younger kids to get used used to going down them you know and um but anyway i liked that i thought that was a lot of fun so i would sneak in them and play in them uh just by myself you know when when we weren't supposed to and of course when i'd climb back out the supervisor would see me and take one look she knew where i'd been you know i was all dirty and everything so she she said, you're dirty as a little pig, you know, and, uh, and the kids picked that up. <laughs> Did you do anything to discourage that nickname later? Well, no, no, not really, because, well, you know, my name's Hargus, so it's, it's pig was, <laughs> I guess, an easier name to remember than Hargus. <laughs> one, one of the things that sort of amazes me uh, about... Um, 
the studio musicians here in, in Nashville is the, is the way that you guys played with each other. You know, the camaraderie, but you know, the musicianship. Could, I wonder your thoughts about that and, and how that, if it doesn't come natural, what, where does it come from? Well, I think everybody's, you know, you uh, interested in performing at their best, you know, and contributing to the record uh, uh, because, you know, uh, the more you, more interest you show and the more hits you play on, the more you get called. So, uh, it's just, and we, we developed, back then we developed a respect for each other when to, when to play, when not to play, you know, and who to listen to and so forth and so on. Mm. And did you feel, um, I, I think especially in the early days, there were um, a lot of good examples of what you could do as far as contribute, you know, ideas and so on. Did you feel that you had that opportunity? Oh, yeah. Uh, <coughs> you know, you have a leader in a session. He's, he's kind of the boss, you know, and uh, uh, between him and the producer, they make the final decision, you know, but if anybody had a, an idea for an intro or a, a lick at a certain point or, you know, a bass run or fill or what what might, you know, we would um, throw it out there, you know, and uh, it was up to the leader or producer to either accept it or not, you know. But everybody had the same objective to, uh, you know, contribute to the record and try to make it become some. Mm. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that some of the collaborations that you've done um, with the A-list, for example, you know, some of the stuff that you've done with some of the drummers, the piano and drums seem to be a, a, a real good match and, and a good partnership. Yeah, the bass and drums and the piano, left hand on the piano, seem to... Uh, well, we've we you know we've added a lot of licks and um, dynamics and so forth. Tell me what it's like for you playing with some of those guys. Like uh, like uh, we we got to hang out with um, Bob Moore yesterday. Yeah. Oh, Bob, he taught me a lot about the business, you know, because uh, he'd been in a while when I when I got in, and uh, we always worked together good. It seems to me that he had a um, a strong interest in in um, melding the, the the whole rhythm section together. Yeah, that's right. Well, we all all did, but he was, you know he was a leader on a lot of stuff, and uh, and uh, so you know he had he had some um, input with the producer as to you know hey let's do this or don't do that or whatever you know. Mm. It's almost a little unfair to ask about specifics because you've done so many things. But I wonder, is anything come to mind when, when you think about um, uh, a favorite lick or adding something that you thought was particularly meaningful to the to the record? Mm, well, you know, I've had licks that contributed to records like Almost Persuaded with David Houston that do 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 little lick in, uh, at the end of the line in the chorus and 
And uh, the lick on don't, don't It Make My Brown Eyes Blue and stuff like that, you know. And, um, and then the left hand on some of George Jones stuff, real simple left hand melodies for intros or whatever. Okay, so that was good old Pig talking about how the A-Team worked well together, and I really appreciated Mike's comment about the uh, the numbering system because I also think those guys appeared to be extra cool and, and with it and connected with each other when these new artists would come in the studio and these guys would just say, okay, let's do three now, and everybody was on the same page and all played together. Um, I think that was a, a sort of a mystique that uh, the A-Team had is just this amazing um, ability to work so well together. So we're going to hear from another guy that uh, is talking about that same concept as our podcast continues. Uh, but this is a new guy that we haven't heard from yet. So I thought I'd do a quick little introduction on the bass player, Bob Moore. You know, my first uh, thoughts about him was he was the, the backup bass player for the Bill Black trio when I was a kid. I, I, I liked everything Elvis, so here's Billy Black was uh, Elvis's bass player, and Bob Moore played in that band. I'm like, wow. They had a bunch of hits together, and um, so when I got a chance to meet him, of course, all I really wanted to do is talk about Elvis, which, of course, we did, but we also talked about other <laughs> stuff, too, um, luckily, because this guy has an amazing career. Uh, he was born in, in Nashville in 1932 and picked up the bass and actually was already playing in the Grand Old Opry at the age of 15. So when the studios came calling and wanted a bass player, here's a guy who was already sort of a, a, a veteran and um, played on countless recordings. Uh, he actually had his own group for a while, and the big hit uh, instrumental hit called Mexico uh, was uh, under the Bob Moore name uh, back in 1961. He also does this uh fantastic intro in the uh, Roger Miller big hit called uh, King of the Road. However, um, another amazing part about Bob's career was he was he was playing bass on nearly every number one hit that Patsy Cline had, which is an amazing record. Um, you know, I Fall to Pieces, Crazy, um, she's not you, uh, faded love walking after midnight. I mean, you name it, he was on it. And, uh, he was by the way in this studio with Buddy Harmon, who we're going to hear about in a little bit. Those two guys were really an amazing, uh, collaborative team of the bass and drums, the rhythm section of the A team. And so they were on countless records together, all of which I just named and several more. Uh, and speaking of more, here's Bob Moore. There's been so many great people that you've played with and, and um, had rapport with. And I think of the, the A-team in Nashville, you know, and these guys that, session guys that really got along in the studio and out of the studio, you know, become pals. And do you think that's an important aspect of some of the music that was created is the camaraderie between the musicians? Yeah, without a doubt, yeah. It's uh, um, respect. For each other and and uh, a genuine respect in, in, in most every way you know you respect other guys playing and you all also respect his ideas and uh, and that's the thing we had and and uh, we we joined together without a word ever being said a lot of times uh, we got to know each other so well, and and a guy play one note, and you hit, and you knew where he was heading for the next bar, you know, and so we ended up 
that, that's what made the A-Team. And a lot of people tried to break in with us on occasion, and, uh, and they were well pleased that we kind of had that. And they, uh, for instance, we had Floyd Kramer on piano in the original part. And, uh, and then when Floyd, uh, he got a hit and kind of started out on the road and all, well, there's a lot of records that he'd be called for, he couldn't do them. And so uh, that's when Pig Robbins came in. And Pig had listened and, and was kind of like one of us already when he took over, so uh, he turned out being the A-team, actually. Great player. Absolutely, all those guys, uh, unbelievable. Yeah. Even the B-team wasn't so bad, you know? <laughs> Whatever the B-team may have been. Yeah, right, <laughs> yeah. But do you count Buddy Harmon in the, in the A-team? Oh, yeah. yeah. What was it like playing with him? He was the greatest drummer on the face of this earth at that time. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, other good drummers come along, but it was because of him. Uh, Buddy right now is uh, about to leave us. I don't know if you know that. Yeah, I heard he's doing really poorly. Yeah. yeah. He's a hell of a guy, too. Oh, yeah. He was my best friend for a lot of years. Mm. And we used to get up at five o'clock in the morning. We both had boats, little, was water skiers. And uh, the lake out here at, at five o'clock in the morning is just like this floor. It's like glass, you know, and uh, no waves or anything. We'd go out there at five o'clock in the morning water ski in the summertime. <laughs> I've got a lot of great old home movies <laughs> playing tricks on each other. <laughs> Pull him up out of the water <laughs> and <then> slow down, <laughs> where he just barely go, you know. <laughs> yeah, boys will be boys. <laughs> He's a he was quite a bowler too. I yeah 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 we we had some really good times. Floyd Kramer was a, bit, was a bowler too. Yeah, yeah. Me, and, me and Floyd used to bowl all night at Melrose. They had an all-night bowling alley out there. Is that right? Yeah, we'd get through with a, a session and, and Floyd would play da-da-da-da-da-da. I said, what the hell is that? He said, that's to the bowling alley. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, that was Bob Moore talking a little bit about how the team worked together. And I think one of the more important things that he said, and probably the nicest compliment that anyone could ever get, was his shout out to Buddy Harmon and how he really brought the A-team together. Dan, can you tell us a little bit about Buddy? Well, I'm very proud to say that uh, Buddy Harmon was a friend of mine, so I'm very honored that we have an interview with him in the NAM Oral History Program. Um, he was born in Nashville in 1928. We lost him in 2008. And along the way, the man recorded a million records. It was just unbelievable. This guy was nonstop. It's sort of, um, a lot of people know about uh, Hal Blaine and the Wrecking Crew and how this guy would go from studio to studio and have you know seven or eight sessions in one day. 
Buddy Harmon wasn't a whole lot different than that. He was just a nonstop, and his whole focus was to get that paycheck to pay for his family. You know, he was a, he was a family man. He cared a lot about his his kids. Uh, his two sons are still drummers in the Nashville area, and. Um, you know, it's just it, he had a huge influence on his family because that was his focus, and we sometimes forget about that. But uh, during the day, he was a monster drummer on records like Oh Pretty Woman by uh, Roy Orbison and Little Sister, Elvis, Kathy's Clown, the Everly Brothers, um, Don't Get Me Started. Oh, Ring of Fire, another great oh. song. You might have heard that guy named Johnny Cash. Um, <laughs> so, you know, um, the thing about Buddy that's important to say is he was not afraid of taking risks. He was the first regular drummer on the Grand Old Opry, as an example, in the 50s. Now, a lot of people don't think about that, but in country music, especially back in the day, like in the 20s when uh, the Grand Old Opry started as a radio program, they didn't have a regular drummer. You know, the beat was played by on the washboard or the bass, and there wasn't drums. In fact, the drums weren't necessarily considered a positive uh, addition to the country lineup when Buddy did it, but he did it anyway, and that's the risk taker I'm talking about. And he would just play anything. He brought in stuff in the studios that he thought would make good sounds, and it didn't matter if it was a traditional drum set or not. Uh, one of my favorite stories about him is I was listening to a song. Uh, oh, it's um, I Got Stung by Elvis. There's a part in that song that doesn't sound like the rest of the drum kit. So I asked Buddy, I said, okay, what's that different sound I'm hearing on this t recording? And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking about. I just decided to bring in a flat tire and just hit on this flat tire. <laughs> I, said, I said, that's fantastic. And he said, yeah, you know what, uh, you know what I tuned it to, right? I'm like, no, what? He said, A, A flat tire. He was very proud of that joke. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Love you, buddy. So, um, yeah, not, not afraid to take risks, not afraid to try something different. And as a result, he assembled an amazing collection that we recently heard in Nashville when we interviewed Paul Limes about uh, having dozens of sets of symbols and dozens of sets of this and that and the other. I mean, he just, he collected because... He wanted to have the right equipment for the right gig, and he was always prepared. He was always positive. I think he always had a, a great collaboration with the other members of the group, especially the bass players, like Bob Morg, for example. And I also think that he was sort of the glue, in a lot of respects, of the legacy of the A-Team. So after... Uh, the other groups sort of replaced them in the Nashville scene, but he was still playing and always talking about the good old days and how we did this with Patsy and how we did this with Elvis. And I really do believe that that helped cement people like me to the understanding of their role. And I don't think if they, you know, if uh, Hal Blaine wasn't the spokesperson for the Wrecking Crew, I don't think we'd have quite the same understanding and reverence for that group as we do. And I think Buddy played the same role with the A-Team. So um, I'm very proud to have been his friend and very happy that we have this interview. So, um, so let's hear from the great Buddy Harmon. I was right there for, I was right there in the right place at the right time. And I, I seemed to have a feel for what they wanted, evidently, because I, I was called for everything. I mean, I did so many sections, I couldn't even 
count them. I mean, I just worked, I worked around the clock three and four sessions a day after a while. Wow. Can you tell us about some of your early recollections of working with Chet Atkins and Owen Bradley? Yeah, uh, Chet was, uh, when, when I worked with Chet, on he played guitar, uh, he didn't want a lot of drums on his personal records, he wanted just brushes. But on, on, on when he produced other albums for other, other singers, then he wanted he wanted regular drums on that, but just on his stuff he just wanted quiet brushy work, brush work. You know. But uh, Owen wanted more than that on his on his artists, say like Patsy Klein and Brenda Lee, and and uh, they wanted a lot more record, a lot more drums. And Kitty Wells, they didn't they didn't put a lot on drum, drums on hers, but they but uh, we worked on up later on to. Uh, we did uh, Bobby Helms' uh, Jingle Bell Rock and in the 50s, and we started working a lot of hit records here and there, and, and then the Everly Brothers came along, Chet produced them. He did Bye Bye Love and Wake Up Little Susie and Kathy's Clown, some really big hits with them. Mm. Then all of a sudden Roy Orbison came along, we did Pretty Woman and all kinds of big hits with him. And then things were starting to roll real good for me. And then all of a sudden, back '58, Elvis came along. Now that was some big stuff there. <laughs> that was big. Elvis was big. That was I was so in awe of him because, uh, you know, I just um, he was such a great artist and, and such a. I don't know how to explain it. He was. Uh, he just he was just charisma, and just he's just a great artist and uh, he just really. And he was good to work with. I mean, he didn't—he didn't give you a hard time. He, he wanted this. He wanted a lot of drums. He liked a lot of drums, so uh, gave a lot of drums. And he loved it. He looked over and grinned when I had some several hot drum licks. You know, he looked over and grinned, so I knew I was in. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Do you but, remember the first time you met him? Yeah, I—I uh, I got called for a session when he did it when he worked in Nashville. Uh, Chet Atkins called me for the session when he went with the RCA. He'd been working for Sun Records and other things. Earlier stuff I did not play on. I think he just used two or three players on that and cut them in New York and other places. Uh, but when he started cutting in Nashville for, for RCA, then that's when I first met him in 1958. Hmm. So I, I was just, I couldn't believe it. I was, I was working with the King. But that's when it started to boom then. Uh, was, that was when the session work really got going good for me. And what were some of the early recordings that you did with Elvis that you were particularly happy with? Well, we did Little Sister, It's Now or Never, uh, His Latest Flame, hmm. so many of them. Uh, now, on some of those sessions, DJ Fontana was also listed. Did you DJ guys was, go back and forth, or no? We we both worked on the um, we both worked all of this session together, two drums. Oh, DJ was his road drummer at the time, and he always used DJ and me. We used two sets of drums on everything. Is that right? I should I shouldn't left that out, but it was always DJ and I together. Hmm. Did did who did more of the percussive sort of effects? Did you guys also take turns on that too? Well, actually, I did uh, the uh, 
uh, once in a while Boots Randolph would do a little clobbies or something like that. And he was a sax player and, and he did some, some of that. But then I did some of it too. DJ would kind of stay with the drums. Mm. But uh, it, it, we, we did so many, we did all, we'd go to LA and do the movie soundtracks where Elvis sang the movies, songs he sang in the movies. And we'd go out there and stay three days and do a whole movie soundtrack. It was great. <laughs> It was like fun. Yeah, it was great. It was great fun. Those were the days. Scotty Moore was also. Scotty Moore was there. What what sort of um, what sort of guy is Scotty Moore? He was great. He was, he was never any problem. He's just really a nice guy, super nice. And he he'd hang in there and do his thing, you know. And everybody loved it. Hmm. Good what, player. What about Boots? What are your what are your thoughts about Boots? Boots was a great sax player. Just wonderful. He always knew what to play and when to play it. So uh, hmm. he lived in Evansville, Indiana, Evansville, Indiana, yeah. and he got, she had started using him on so many sessions, he decided, instead of driving down all the time, he'd go ahead and move to Nashville, which he did, and he's, she had started using him on a lot of things after that. Wow. And then Owen started using him on some stuff, too. He was good. Who else was in those, in those early sessions with Elvis? Who were the other sidemen that you remember? Floyd Kramer, mm. Bob Moore. Uh, it sort of skipped around a little bit. Uh, let's see, I think uh, once in a while Jerry Reed played on some of them, and then uh, uh, Hank Garland did some, and Grady Martin did some. Hmm. Uh, And then when, when we did when we went to the West Coast to work, they used some West Coast players also, with, along with us. Hmm. That must have been fun. It was. We got to work with some nice, nice, super nice guys and musicians out there on the West Coast, hmm. and they were just real nice guys. They were fun to work with, and good players. Did you ever do any appearance with Elvis? Any touring? Yeah, or any television or anything? No, uh, he asked me to go on the road with him. Back when I was so busy in the studios, I just, I just felt like I shouldn't leave the studios. I was too busy, mm. so I, I really had to decline. But I really would like to have done that. But uh, it was, I was just so busy in the studios. I hated to give that up. Yeah. Well, there's a couple of things that you did in the studios that have been absolutely a part of American popular music. And one of them is that great drum beat that you gave to Roy Orbison's Pretty Woman. Yeah. How did that come about? <clears throat> well, Roy, Roy, we did a lot of stuff with Roy. And every time we did a session with Roy, he'd always bring his guitar over in front of the drum booth. And he'd play whatever he was going to play on a record. And he'd always play something and he'd say, what will go with this? So I'd try to come up with something that would go with that, you know. Well, on Pretty Woman, he played that straight four beat, and I said, well, hell, that's easy. <laughs> this is, that's obvious what's gonna go with that. And he, he said, that's it, that's what I want right there. Hmm. So that, that was, uh, it worked perfect. What was the atmosphere like in the studio with him? Was it sort of tense, or was it, was it just friendly and, it was friendly. Everybody wanted to try to create something, and some of those things had arrangements on them with with the group, group, vocal group singing. 
mm. and uh, and uh, rhythm sections and uh, the producer was Fred Foster on most of that stuff and great producer and uh, and Orson was a great singer and uh, he just had great material to record and he sang the devil out of it I mean he just he was unbelievable he hit those high notes like he wouldn't believe he knocked us all out we, we didn't know what to think. <laughs> now, was that the situation where when those backup singers, all of you were all in the recording studio at the same time doing it, and it was sort of one take at a time? Sort exactly. Of Everybody was in the studio at once. Hmm. If we had strings, they were all in there together, and voices, whatever was in there on that record was all in the studio at the same time. Now it's different, I think. They do it piecework. Well, it's interesting to me when when most people conjure up the idea that you have all of these people in the same room, you, you got to figure that if the saxophone guy hits a note wrong, you got to start all over again. But that really didn't happen a whole lot, did it? No. No, they can, they can punch in now if that happens. Well, that's true. But back then, you know, you guys were really sort of the A-team. You didn't make many mistakes. We had a great band. The A-Team was a great band. I mean, we, it was just, uh, we, could, we, we had uh, sounds for every artist that we worked with. We had a Ray Price sound, had a Patsy Klein sound, a Brenda Lee sound, a Roy Orbison sound. Whatever artist we were working with, we sort of had a sound for that artist. And when that intro came on, you knew what, who it was going to be, who the singer was going to be, because we had, uh, everybody had uh, their own sound type. But now that's not true in music anymore. You don't know who's going to be singing now when you hear an intro. It could be anybody. But that's not bad, I don't guess. But uh, we just had uh, we just had uh, the band had uh, figured out a sound for for most artists we worked with, big artists especially. Very cool hearing from Buddy Harmon. Such an amazing drummer and amazing musician overall. Now we're going to hear from Bob Moore again, talking about other people that they've played with. Well, tell me, if you would, about the early days of, of the studio, because you've been in the studio for an awful long time, and I'm sure you've seen some major changes just in how things are done, let alone all the people that oh, you've yeah, worked with. Yeah. yeah, it used to be, uh, you miss a note, that was too bad. Either go back and do it all over again or let it go, you know. And, uh, but nowadays, uh, with all the uh, electronics uh, the way they do and all, and Pro Tools and GarageBand, all the things that they have out there, you can fix any one note, or if it's out of tune, you can tune it up. And so, uh, or down for some people. <laughs> <laughs> and that's not like it was at the beginning. No, no, if you missed a note, it was chiseled in stone unless you go back and do the whole thing again. I remember Marty Robbins, uh, we did some 15-minute shows with him, uh, a, a series of them, 250 or something. Uh, for uh, They were all sold, they were transcriptions to play on uh, out, out uh, uh, radio stations that were not close into town, you know. And, uh, yeah, two or three times he'd miss one and uh, it would be 14 minutes, they were 15 minute shows, would be 14 minutes into the show and he'd miss it. He'd, 
do a little hell raising and say, oh, we got to do the whole thing again, and we'd have to do the whole show again in order to get it right. <laughs> so then it got to where uh, he'd make a comedy out of it and say, well, I meant to do that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> As opposed to having to do it all over again. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> The jokes become more important the longer the show is, I guess. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but it, it, uh, it, it turns out to be fun. You know, some, sometimes you have to do one over but, uh, or in those days. But uh, usually you could get by with if it's just a little slight thing. You know, stammer and stutter. <laughs> just do it again a little bit later on. They think they, it was meant to be, I guess. Yeah, right, and you have a big <laughs> laugh about it make a joke out of it. People like that, especially on stage. You know, if uh, somebody on stage makes a, a flub, well, they, uh, they turn to make a joke out of it, and, and the audience usually likes that. Good trick. Well, having listened to all this music when you were growing up, what was it like for you playing with some of these guys that you had admired? I mean, there's a there's got to have been some of your heroes that you got to play with. I was in heaven, you know, a, a little boy from poor side of town getting to play music and make money and, and or make a living and, and uh, meet the people I was meeting and especially to be uh, honored by them calling you, you know, uh, George Jones calling me, Red Foley calling me, Patsy Klein wouldn't cut without me. It's things like that, and those things get put in the paper, and that's that's really an honor. Mm. Makes you wake up with a smile on your face. I would bet, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I heard about that with uh, Patsy. Tell me a little bit about your time with with recording with her. With Patsy? Yeah. Oh, most people want to hear about. Uh, uh, you know, uh, she became, we, we, we had a softball team and we'd play on Wednesday nights and, uh, and Patsy became our mascot and she had loaded the trunk of her car with uh, a big uh, wash tub full of ice and beer and come out and, and sit in the stands right by our car. It was in a, in a park here and, and she'd yell and hoot for us, and, and uh, she was our mascot, and, and she became good buddies with all, all of us. And so one night, uh, we just got, one afternoon, we just got through with a record session, and I said, well, you're gonna uh, come out to ball game tonight? And she said, no, I said, I can't come tonight. I said, uh, my husband's coming in, and uh, we're gonna buy a house. We're gonna go house hunting tonight. And uh, I told, I said, well, I'll tell you, I've got uh, uh, just putting my house up for sale. I found another house that I like, and I'm going to put this one up for sale. And she said, well, we'll come look. So uh, Charlie got in, her husband, and, uh, and they came out my house and bought it on the spot. And so I moved out, and Patsy moved in. And uh, then she had, right after that, she had crazy, had that big hit. Then. You know that song, uh, uh, when it came in, it was a whole different arrangement. We rearranged and all, but uh, uh, the song speaks for itself and, uh, and Patsy's treatment speaks for itself. And uh, it's turned out 
over the years that that is the number one played song all over the world of all time. It's had more record, um, I mean, more uh, plays on the radio and jukeboxes and things. Wow. Still holding up, number one. And I understand she didn't really want to record it at first. Did you hear that story? No, I don't. I don't. I don't know. I've heard a lot of stories, and that may be one of them. I don't remember that at all. What do you remember about the session? Well, I did all of her sessions, so uh, it was an, another among many that uh, I don't really have any definite memories about that particular song or on the session. Uh, over the years, you know, you hear it back so many times and that's what becomes embedded in your mind, but uh, uh, as far as on the session, I, I think I do remember that she got it in one take. It seemed like we did it a, a couple of times and she wasn't happy with her delivery or something and uh, and when we went back in or uh, she came back in town or something and she went in, she banged it right out. Hmm. What, what sort of um, atmosphere was that, did she create in the studios? I mean, was she sort of high strung about recordings or laid back or how, how would you say that? No, we just all had a big time. She was telling jokes and laughing, carrying on. She's one of the guys, always was. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, she was, she was a trip. <laughs> okay, that was the bass player Bob Moore from the A-Team. And, um, you know, there's a, a couple of thoughts that uh, I wanted to make sure we expressed, and that is the legacy of the A-Team in Nashville. These guys created what was known as the Nashville Sound. They created what is known as the numbering system. They created a ton of great recordings and friendships among themselves. They also were way beyond just country music. They helped, I think, Nashville become way more than just the place you go to record a country song. Um, and I think they proved that by having, you know, played with Bob Dylan and Simon and Garfunkel and, and so many others that we don't necessarily think ever recorded there. But that's still the case. You know, Paul Simon just recorded there a couple of years ago. I mean, it's still the hub to go if you want the great musicians in the studio, the great producers and the great songwriters and arrangers. They're all there, uh, and it's not just about country music. And I think the A-Team had a lot to do with that. Another part of their legacy is the folks that followed. There was a, a studio group following the A-Team known as the, the Nashville Cats, uh, they had the Nashville Cats comprised of folks that were in the A-Team, but a lot of younger artists like uh, Dwayne Eddy, Steve Gibson, Reggie Young, and our good friend here at NAMM, Norbert Putman. Um, and then the, uh, the Nashville Cats had a, a wonderful run in the 1970s, mostly up into the 80s, and they were... Uh, followed by the Nashville Players, which included Eddie Bear and, and Paul Franklin um, and our good friend Jim Horn, among others. Uh, and I'm just naming the folks that we've interviewed that were in these groups, or of course, lots of other musicians. 
and uh, the the Nashville players still get together and, and record, uh, although there are other groups now, like uh, Garth Brooks's musicians, known as the G-Men, um, still are very active in the industry. So uh, the legacy of the A-Team and that collaboration, that group that really works well together in that setting continues. Let's hear a little bit of how much music impacts the lives of these musicians and some of the A-Team's final thoughts. Here's Buddy Harmon and Charlie McCoy. I'd love for you to just expand a little bit on what making music has meant to you. Making music? Well, it's, it's, been, uh, it's been my life. It's just, it's just uh, I mean, I've really, it's, it's really been something I really enjoy doing. I mean, a lot of people get up and go to work every day and they don't really enjoy doing it. You know, I, I used to enjoy going to work every day and every night. And that's, that's the, if you know, a lot of people don't get that. It's been great. I mean, how many people can go say they enjoy going to work every day? Not a lot. But uh, it's been great. It's been fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> and you've got to meet some interesting people and, and play some wonderful oh, yeah. things. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Got to meet a lot of great singers and got interesting people, good artists, try to create things and have, have looked out and created some things that were real good, came out real good. Hmm. So it's, it's, been a, it's been a great life. We were talking off camera before about certain artists getting material that doesn't necessarily fit them or get them excited. Does that happen often for studio musicians? Uh, not usually. Uh, you know, this is one thing we have in Nashville. We have lots of great songwriters, and uh, most sessions you go to, the material's pretty good. And I, I remember, you know, back in the there was a period from the middle 60s through the early 80s. It was a 15-year period. I know I did more than 400 sessions a year. And I know there were guys like Bob and Pig Robbins and Buddy Harmon who were doing more than that. And people would say, we, sometimes you know, we'd do three sessions a day, four sessions a day. And they'd say, how do you get up for it, you know? And you know, it was amazing. You could go into a, of course, they don't have so many late sessions anymore, but back then they did. You'd go into that late session, it would be your fourth session of the day, and you're just dragging, you know. And they would come out with a great song, and everybody's up, you know. It's amazing how it, it, it lifts you. And this, the secret to this town is the song, you know, that's, they've always had the songs. and. Uh, Four years ago, our union, Musicians' Union, put on a concert, the 100th year anniversary of the Nashville Musicians' Union. We, it was a four-hour concert, a whole lot of us played, and we did, we did four hours of some of the greatest songs, you know, Hank Williams, Chris Christopherson, I mean, all the great classic country songs, and songs that have been recorded in this city. And, at the end of the concert, I heard somebody ask, what do you think they'll play at the 200th anniversary? And I heard somebody say, 
the same songs because these songs are classic and they're going to last forever. So once again, that was Charlie McCoy and before him, Buddy Harmon. And this has just been a great podcast talking all about the A-Team. Some great thoughts come out of, came out of this and it's just cool to hear the stories of another studio-based group. No doubt about it. You know, I, one final thought I wanted to add is when I was a kid listening to my favorite Elvis records, I was so um, frustrated with the fact that I could never figure out who was playing with Elvis. Elvis got all the credit, but who was playing that amazing guitar? Later found out it was Scotty Moore. You know, I think we've come a long way in documenting the people behind the scenes. And if this podcast brings that a little bit further, I have to say, hand on heart, I'm very honored because I know that's what I wanted as a listener. You know, let's give some love to those guys who played amazingly, consistently, and for a myriad of different styles. Thanks, you guys, for helping me do that today. Of course. It was a lot of fun. Happy to help. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everyone. Thank you for listening, and we will see you again in two weeks. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. We won't see you. It's audio. <laughs> <laughs>